we're doing is just seeing how Christ is the fulfillment of scriptural prophecy and fulfillment. Um, for those of you who don't know, Pastor Sean is away, so I am Andrew Hayes. I'm the youth pastor here, and I am filling in for him. Um, so today, we're going to turn to Luke 24, 13 uh, through 27. All right, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him, and he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women in our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said. But him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. All right, so that is our text for this morning that's going to kind of launch us into this journey of Christ in all of Scripture. Uh, you know, I was thinking that, you know, we, no, we normally don't think of the Bible as a complete book. We just think of it as, you know, the particular books in which we happen to be studying in. But the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is actually a complete story. And that story is all about Jesus. You know, there's something about stories that just naturally drive us. You know, you think of those great stories like Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, Hamlet, A Christmas Carol. Uh, we just naturally are drawn to these gripping Meta narratives, which is this grand story that explains everything. Uh, by the way, in this passage, I, I kind of, I, when I read through scripture a lot of times, there's sometimes little ironies that kind of capture me and like, oh, you know, that's actually kind of funny that they're asking this question. Um, and the disciples, as they're journeying here, they're having this conversation about what Jesus uh, did in his life, his death. And then they say, and Jesus is asking them, okay, you know, what is this conversation you're having? And then they say to them, you know, are you the only one who doesn't know what happens? I'm like, this is Jesus. Are you kidding me? I mean, if anybody knows what happened, it's him. And so it's like those little ironies that I sometimes miss um, in Scripture. So just wanted to point that out there that sometimes you read too fast and we miss out those little ironies and those little senses of humor that the Bible does have in it. Uh, Those two disciples are likely Cleopas. We find out the second one is likely Simon Peter. Uh, Verse 34, it says a Simon. Um, So those two disciples, Cleopas, likely Simon Peter, journeying to Emmaus, 
trying and discussing, trying to understand what Jesus did and what he did on the cross and why his tomb is empty. And they're trying to figure out what in the world is going on. Uh, In the middle of their conversation, he joins in. He questions them first, and then he rebukes them and tells them, oh, you know, this was necessary because this was written in the prophets. Uh, When he talks about Moses and all the prophets, that's that's just a euphemism for saying the whole Old Testament. So what he did, what he did in verse 27 is opened up the scriptures, or he probably did this from memory, from Moses through all the prophets and interpreted to him, to them all the scriptures concerning himself. So I think the key part here is in Matthew 5.17 when Jesus tells the disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, is, do not think I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So that's what Jesus was doing, is showing how he was the fulfillment of these prophecies. And so that's kind of what we're going to do today is just kind of go through the Old Testament, just a few passages in there, and show how Jesus is the fulfillment of those uh, themes, those stories, and those types, and that they all point towards Christ. And Christ has always been the plan from the beginning. It was no plan B. Our sin and what God needed to do to redeem, redeem us had nothing to do with God, you know, and Israel's failure, but it had all to do with Christ. So, where better to begin than the book of Genesis? So, if you guys want to turn to Genesis 3.15, uh, you've got to remember, prior to Genesis uh, 3, you have Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 1 and 2, God created the world, everything in it. We are in a per- perfect relationship with God. However, Adam and Eve, this is chapter 3 now. Chapter 3 is also known as the fall. And in In chapter 3, Adam and Eve succumb to Satan's temptation in the form of a serpent, and that is when our relationship was marred with God. So in this dark moment of human history, God is in the middle of cursing uh, the serpent, the man, and the woman. And this is in the curse of the serpent. So here's Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That's kind of a very obscure passage, but so let me kind of break it down for you a little bit. Is that Satan, he is known as God's adversary, and it is seen that he is behind the crucifixion of Jesus. Uh, It is said that Satan entered into Judas, and that is when Judas went and betrayed Jesus. Uh, Satan did indeed bruise Jesus on the cross. I mean, that was a pretty... Not a very good death to go through. That was about the most gruesome death you could go through in that culture. However, as we know, standing on this side of the cross, Jesus was not defeated there, but ultimately defeated Satan. And more importantly, when Jesus returns, he is going to proclaim his victory over the world, over the earth, and put Satan in hell where he belongs. We are the true offspring of Jesus as well, and Satan is as war as us. He is also our adversary, But that is why we can take encouragement from knowing that Jesus will ultimately win. Um, He will crush Satan's head. He will bruise his head. Uh, He is going to win. We see this in the book of Revelation. Uh, It's amazing to me, even in this fall, that Christ was the plan all along. Like, our sin didn't really surprise God at all. Uh, Ephesians 1, 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Uh, Paul indicates here 
that this was the plan before the foundation of the world. Therefore, we can conclude that our sin, what we did and uh, what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden, did not surprise God. He did not have to come up with some sort of backup plan, like Jesus wasn't a plan B. He didn't have to like, oh man, what am I going to do now? It didn't surprise God. He knew all along that, that Jesus was going to have to come and die and rise again. Jesus was always the plan. All right, so lest you think that's the only part in Genesis about uh, Jesus, go ahead and flip over a few chapters to Genesis 12. Uh, This is also kind of known as the Abrahamic covenant. This happens a few times uh, with Abram or Abraham. And this is the very first instance uh, that is recorded. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So in God's covenant to Abram, he promised to make him a blessings to all the families of the earth. So in the narrow and close view, you know, what's most close to Abraham is the promise of Isaac and of Israel. But we know that Isaac and Israel weren't really able to fulfill this uh, promise that he made to Abraham because of Israel's disobedience. However, Jesus fulfills this because he is a descendant of Abram. And in Abraham, in Abram, we can be blessed and we can be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Uh, Paul, again, kind of helps explain this a little bit in Galatians 3, 7 through 9. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham... In the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. I think the phrase, preach the gospel, is really interesting here. How could God preach the gospel of Jesus to Abraham? Because Abraham is in the Old Testament. Um, It's clear to me that Abraham was saved in this future promise of Jesus, that his faith in Christ and that future redemption that was promised. Uh, I actually had this question just a few weeks ago from one of the youth. They were asking me, how is it that the Old Testament saints were saved? Well, I believe that they are saved the same way that we were, by grace, through faith in Jesus. But how does that really work? Well, you know, we are saved looking backwards towards the cross. They were saved looking forwards toward the cross of Christ. For, you know, for instance, some people don't really quite understand this, and they would argue for a plan of law and works, the Mosaic law, and a plan of faith. However, as Paul rightly points out, it has and always will be faith that saves. It's not works. Works are never really an option because we can't ever really do enough to earn our way into heaven. We can all, and actually, I kind of take comfort from that, knowing that I can't earn my way there. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I have one of those consciences that just really pricks really easily. And, it, you know, I can really stand condemned because of my own conscience a lot of times. And if it was up to me on my own works, I know I would be nowhere near where I needed to be. So I take great encouragement knowing that it's always in faith in Christ. So uh, I'm kind of going a bit on a rabbit trail here. So let's kind of return back to our theme here of, of finding Christ in all of Scripture. So... Last instance in Genesis, Genesis 22. And you guys are going to want to turn to Genesis 22, 1 through 14. Uh, This is a pretty famous passage of 
of uh, Scripture where Abraham is commanded to sacrifice Isaac. Now, this has kind of set the stage a little bit. Isaac was the promised seed, the promised heir of Abraham. So Abraham was the sacrifice, this promised son to God. And so Abraham's, I, I think, is probably really confused about this. And this, you know, you can kind of sense the intrigue and suspense. Like, okay, you know, is he really going to do it? What's going to go happen here? So instead of me just telling you what happens, let's read and find out. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, and they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here am I, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for an burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they went... When they came to a place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid on him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I see that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to, to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. So this is very thick, rich imagery that is going on here in Genesis 22. God, we see in this passage, spares the life of Abraham's son, Isaac. Uh, this episode kind of foreshadows Christ. This is kind of what God did for us. Uh, Abraham offers up Isaac. God offers up Jesus. God spares the life of Isaac. However, God would not spare the life of his own son. Instead, God allowed Jesus to be slaughtered and sacrificed for us. Jesus is this lamb of God slain for us. Uh, also interesting is that in verse 8 and 14, Abraham comments that the Lord will provide. God does provide everything needed for salvation in the person and work of Christ. All of this is being foreshadowed in this episode recorded here in Genesis 22. So I hope you guys are kind of getting to get this idea that Jesus is just kind of everywhere in Scripture and that things are just pointing towards him throughout the Old Testament. So one last example in the Old Testament. So go ahead and turn to Jeremiah 31. We'll be in verses 31 through 34. 
Alright, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them from the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So Jeremiah, the prophet, he sets this future prophecy for the nation of Israel when he's knowing that Judah is about to be overrun by Babylon. Babylon is just about ready to take over and wipe out the nation of Israel and just scatter them to the, to the nations. Um, Israel broke their covenant with God. We see that, and Je- Jeremiah was telling us about this. You know, it's like, hey, they broke that covenant with me, even though I was their husband. I remember all the evil kings that is recorded in First and Second, uh, not First and Second Samuel, sorry, First and Second Kings and Chronicles. Uh, you have all these evil, wicked kings, both in the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah. Uh, God knew from the beginning that a new and better covenant was needed, one in which no one needed to be told, no God. For God would write this law on the people's hearts. This implies that the old covenant of Moses was incomplete for changed hearts. The law could only change external behavior, but it was unable to change a person's heart. That is why a new and better covenant was needed. God promises to forgive and remember their sins no more. So how is God going to accomplish this feat? Well, he was able to accomplish this only in the person and work of Jesus on the cross. Uh, Jesus in the upper room... Uh, prior to the cross, kind of recalls this prophecy from Jeremiah. First he breaks bread, which represents his body being broken for us. Then he turns his attention to the cup and tells the disciples to drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the, for the forgiveness of sins. That's Matthew 26, 27 through 28. Jesus sees himself as initiating this new covenant of Jeremiah. He is the one who sealed in this new covenant with his spilled blood on the cross. Not only would the law be put in our hearts, but now we are empowered to live this out in the Holy Spirit. Think about it, you know, like who better to live out the law or to live out what God wants us to do than God himself within us in the presence of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Hebrews 10, 11 through 23 makes this even more explicit by quoting the same passage of Jeremiah. Uh, I just say that for you as a reference to go look up on your own time. But uh, in the Old Testament, almost all the Old Covenants were required... Let me back up. In the Old Testament, almost all covenants had to be initiated with spilled blood. Uh, Blood had to be spilled for a covenant to be effective. Uh, In the case of the New Covenant, Christ's blood is what was spilled for us to seal in its effectiveness. Uh, Jesus is this fulfillment of this new covenant that God promised to Jeremiah. Now, obviously, we don't have um, all year because we could just go through all the Old Testament and just show how it all points to Christ. The point being that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, the types, those themes, they all point towards Christ. So when you read through the Old Testament, we can see how everything just points at him. So in the New Testament, we see the apostles reacting to the person and work of Christ. That is why in Scripture and in human history, the person in Christ, the, the person in cross of Christ is central. And, you know, I've become, begun to kind of think of this as kind of like a 3D image. 
um, I've been thinking, I don't know how many of you as a kid had those 3D picture books where you'd go through and there's just this flat image, but you had to look at it in a certain way in order for that 3D image to jump out at you. If I remember right, some of these were really, really ridiculous. Like it just looked like a bunch of little fuzzy things on there and you're just, what, what in the world's going here? But unless you did something weird like look cross-eyed at it or put your nose at it and then move it away, you couldn't really see that 3D image jump out at you. And I think that's kind of what it's like, you know, discovering Jesus in all of Scripture is he's there. Sometimes we just have to look really, really carefully and understand that they are pointing, the Old Testament is pointing towards him. And after, and after Jesus' life, death, burial, resurrection, the apostles are just reacting to him. Uh, we can see that, that, that Christ in the cross was always the plan from the beginning of human history to today. Jesus was not sent because of the failure of Israel. God always intended to send Jesus from the very beginning. God was not surprised by our sin, but he knew what he needed to do to redeem us from our adversary, from ourselves and his adversary, the devil. So from this journey through the Old Testament, what can we kind of know about God? What can we know uh, about him and what he did? Or since I've been kind of teaching teenagers, this is the so what question. Um, I have six things that we can know. One, Christ shows that God is all-knowing. God is not surprised by sin. He was not surprised by our failure. The Trinity knew that the Son was going to have to come and die so that we could have our fellowship with God. God knew all along what our salvation would cost and how it would be accomplished. God knew the outcome of human history. Therefore, since God knows the future, God knows what will happen, what we will think, what we will do before we even think and do it. So we can know from Christ that God is all-knowing. Number two, Christ shows that God is all-powerful. God not only knew what was needed to accomplish salvation, but he was able to see it through. Now, I was thinking like of how many of the political commentators that we have that are able to even prophetically say, hey, you know, this needs to change, and this needs to change, and this is what needs to happen, and this is what needs to be done. But they don't have any ability to see that happen. Or, you know, I could think of plenty of guys who's like, well, if I was president, this is what I would do. You know, everybody has all the answers, but nobody's able to accomplish everything. But not so with God. God not only knows what needs to be happen, but he is able to do it. Um, I, I think sometimes that this, is, this combination of God being all-knowing and all-powerful, we, we understand that intellectually, but when we go through a personal tragedy and suffering and loss, we have a hard time believing it. Uh, we, we sometimes lack this faith because we're like, man, if God was really good and God was all-powerful, all-knowing, why didn't he change the situation so it didn't turn out so bad for me? However, what we can know from studying the person and work of Christ on the cross that God can take the very worst of things and turn them into the very best of things. So when personal loss, personal tragedy strikes, we need to preach to ourselves a cross and understand that God can take those very dark moments in history and turn them into something very good. All right, so number three, Christ shows that God is involved in human history. We do not serve a God of a deist religion. Now, what a deist believes is that God created the world, kind of set it down its course, and is now not actively involved in it. I mean, he doesn't really care what happens. He just created it and just let it go, let it run. Now, he is not like Pilate, kind of washed his hands and said, all right, be what you will. No, we have a God who steps into history, who interacts with us and is involved in our human history. Uh, he is not only just involved from the outside, but he actually stepped into history in the form of a man. So do not fall for that deist heresy of a God that is not concerned or involved in our human history. 
Number four, Christ shows that God condemns sin. We sometimes like to think that God just kind of winks at sin, doesn't really care a whole lot about it, and doesn't take it all that seriously. You know, he's kind of like a, God, uh, you know, a grandfather who's just like, ah, you know, that wasn't that bad. I mean, just go, ahead, just go ahead and do it again. You know, I forgive you. It's not a big deal. No, I mean, we see in, in Jesus that God takes sin very seriously, deathly seriously. That's why Christ had to die, because the wages of sin is death. God hates sin, and he's going to punish it. It is only in the redemption provided by Christ that we can have that free gift of God, which is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Number five, Christ shows that God loves. I think it best probably just to quote scripture here. So 1 John 4, 9 through 10. And this, the love of God, was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Uh, it was God's good pleasure and in his love to suffer and die for us. It was not anything worthy in us, but because he sought to demonstrate his love towards us. So Christ shows God's love. All right, number six, Jesus is the only true hope. We will be judged in the final days with what we did with Christ. Since Jesus is the hinge of history and the only way of salvation, we can know that Jesus is the only thing that really matters. Everything about the past, present, and future will continue to be in Christ. Don't procrastinate about deciding whether or not today is the day to place your faith in Christ. For we do not know what's going to happen tomorrow, ten minutes from now, an hour from now, a uh, hundred years from now. We just do not know. So do not put off that decision to trust in Christ. Also, since I, I chose my words very carefully there, the idea of being the only true hope. You, cannot, you can have hope in Buddha. You can have hope in Gandhi. You can have hope in uh, whoever it is that you may have hope in besides Jesus, but that will not get you into heaven. It is only hope and your faith and trust in Jesus. He alone is the one who can provide salvation. And for those of us who are in Christ, we will naturally want to share this hope with other people. And like, hey, if we have the only true hope, how can we not tell other people about it? I don't know about you, but that's, that's probably where, where I get the most excited and the most condemned sometimes is just this excitement. Like, hey, you know, if we have the real true hope, we should just be on fire for wanting to share this with other people who do not know him yet. Um, so before we uh, close here, let's turn our attention back towards that passage we started with in Luke. So back to Luke 24, and we'll finish out that section of Scripture. And I hope that uh, our reaction um, to, the, to this teaching that Christ is the fulfillment of all of Scripture will be that of, the, of these disciples. All right, so they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the Scriptures? When they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. 
Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. All right, so I think there's kind of like two reactions that we see from the disciples. Is one, that they are just excited to discover Christ everywhere in Scripture. You know, I get this feeling that they were just thrilled and excited, like, whoa, you know, I had no idea this was going on. You know, and I, I think that's the kind of excitement we need uh, when we are reading through the Bible ourselves. It's like, it's not this duty-bound thing. It's like, oh, yeah, you know, today is the day, I guess, uh, you know, 8 o'clock, I just woke up, I need to go read my Bible because, you know, that's what all Christians do. It's like, no, you know, when you go through Scripture, when you read through it, it's a chance to discover and encounter Christ. Um, some of, the, some of us may struggle with certain books in the Old Testament, such as Numbers and Leviticus. Hey, I know those, those censuses aren't really exciting in you know, all the begats. Uh, I can understand how that might not be so thrilling, but when you understand that that point towards Christ, for me, that helps me read through those passages that I might struggle through. Uh, the second thing that I noticed, uh, this is in verse 34, is that they proclaim the risen Lord. Uh, the truths that they had learned from Jesus were too great to keep to themselves. They had to go share it with others. So when we understand the centrality of Christ in human history, our excitement, our desire, our joy in knowing this truth is just going to come out with us. It's kind of like a glass of water. If you have a full glass of water and God keeps filling, filling your cup up, it's just going to flow out of you. So the more that we fill ourselves with the knowledge and joy of Christ and knowing how much of a central, pivotal figure he is, it's just going to come out with us. We are not going to be able to contain ourselves. So I've been thinking about uh, this, actually, I've been reading through the Chronicles of Narnia recently. Um, You know, I'm actually a very avid reader. Uh, I probably read more than I should, if you ask my wife. But I I read lots and lots of books, um, it's just one of those, I, and I have a hard time, like, you know, I got books in my office, and I like to bring them home, and then when I bring them home, then it's like, you know, oh, you know, I need to put the book down so I can actually pay attention to, to my wife and do some chores around the house, because I, I am, like, engrossed in the books. Uh, when I was a kid, I actually would be in the middle of a class, and people would be talking around me, and I had no idea what they were saying, because I was so fixed in a book. But anyway, that's a bit of a digression, but Chronicles of Narnia... Uh, I was thinking of this book, this scene in Prince Caspian. Uh, in this scene, Lucy sees Aslan and discovers that Aslan, who is Lewis's Christ figure throughout these books, has grown. Uh, Aslan comments that, hey, you know, I haven't really grown, but I am bigger because your understanding of me is just larger. And that is why I look bigger to you, because you are seeing me that I am just this huge, huge deal. And I, when I thought about that, I'm like, man, how true that is. You know, the more that we understand Christ, the more that we see how big and how he shows up everywhere, uh, we're going to see how large of a God and how large of a king that we serve. So I don't know about you, but this excites me to discover and to read through my Bible to understand and see how big God is. Let's pray. Right, dear God, I thank you for everybody here today. Lord, I pray that uh, as we read through your word, that we would see you for who you are, that we would see you as a big, mighty king, and that that our understanding of you would continue to grow. And God, I pray that our excitement and the joy of knowing you would drive us to share it with other people. God, I pray that we would be bold with our faith, that we would not contain our joy of knowing you. 
God, I pray that uh, it's, this joy would be so contagious that it would be uh, attractive to others who do not know you yet. Lord, you are the only true hope, and we desire to share you to the ends of the earth. Lord, we pray all this in your name. Amen.